Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU News. We're going to talk about the environment and climate change. Um, this is obviously an issue we can talk about every week, and we have assembled three great guests today to talk with us. I, think, I guess we haven't assembled them. They're all on Zoom. Alex Crowley, the Director of Economic and Sustainable Development at the City of Bloomington. Gabe Filippelli, who is the Executive Director for the Environmental Research Institute at IU. And Jessica Davis, who's the Interim University Director of Sustainability for Indiana University and Director of IUPUI Sustainability. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or call toll-free 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And we're also on Twitter. You can follow us at Noon Edition and send your questions there. What prompted us to do this show, of course, we could do a climate show probably every week, but what prompted us to put this on the schedule was the uh, climate summit last month um, that was in Egypt, and that just got us thinking about this as an issue again, and we wanted to get some feedback and just talk about what's new and what's happening around our area. So. Gabe Filippelli, if you could just start us off, um, you know, that summit was last month. There was a lot of news that came out of it. Was there anything that was particularly uh, heartening or disheartening for you when you looked at what was happening? Well, these summits are always an important um, check on how well we're doing in terms of our commitments to reducing the harmful impacts of climate change. And just like all of these, all of these summits have been in the past, it's really important to assemble for a couple of weeks and consider our global actions and individual national actions. So often it's just two weeks of talking, and this was a lot of talking, but there was one remarkable outcome of this, which is that uh, the the countries, assembled parties, uh, have agreed to provide a loss and damage fund for vulnerable countries that are hit hardest by climate disasters. So. You know, we used to call them weather disasters. Now it's pretty clear that a lot of them are really climate super fueled. And so this loss and damage fund will uh, will be paid into by the wealthier countries who are able to handle the impacts of climate change better and will pay out to specific actions for some of these vulnerable countries. What countries would the, those be primarily, vulnerable countries? Or can you just give uh, so, me one or two examples? Sure. Um, Bangladesh, uh, the Maldives, uh, Kiribati and Tuvalu, I can go on. But okay. yeah, the, <laughs> the countries that are usually most impacted by either drought or uh, sea level rise and, and coastal damage. All right. Jessica, are you uh, paying close attention to that summit? Can you give us uh, some feedback? Sure. So I think Gabe captured one of the most exciting parts, but I would say one that's a bit closer to home is I was really uh, excited to see that Governor Holcomb was in attendance. Uh, he was actually the first time that an Indiana governor has attended COP. I think that's a really exciting opportunity for us. And I also believe he was the only uh, governor from the Midwest to attend. Uh, so that signals certainly uh, action here at home, which uh, in our role, we're definitely uh, interested and focused on uh, Indiana and how we can make improvements here at the university. And his attendance there is a nice signal for that. Alex, I know that you you know you work a lot. You, you work very close to home with the city of Bloomington. Uh, you know, I'm I can ask you for your feedback on that, or and you know if you if you don't feel as comfortable talking about that, 
just about you know how if we had a summit in Bloomington today, you know what would be the the key message that or some of the key messages that would come out of it. Well, I would say two things. One is, you know, what is writ large at COP27 is being applied very, very locally here. In other words, it's really looking at who are the most affected, who are the most vulnerable, in our case, in terms of the local population, and how do we, how do we drive the maximum amount of uh, protection and, and, you know, literally funding to help those most affected. So, so the sort of the broad... Um, outcome from COP27 is also something that is being aligned with with our efforts here. I would say, you know, in terms of uh, if we had a regional uh, summit, we actually did, and I can talk about it at some point, but we had a regional climate convening um, in October. And so we uh, brought together a whole bunch of people uh, with with a stake in the in the in actually a tri-county area. And I can get into that a little bit later. Gabe, I just want to ask a quick follow-up about this loss and damage fund for um, countries who aren't as able to afford some of these climate protections. Does does any of that money, or is it something separate, perhaps, that would help poor countries do more climate-friendly things? I'm thinking like solar panels or things like that. Uh, yes, it does, in fact. Um, so, yeah, the, the money wouldn't be wouldn't be given to build new coal-fired power plants so that they can maintain their energy infrastructure, for example. Um, so there are, are, are certainly um, bounds to that. I think the challenge is, though, that those kinds of things, uh, solar arrays, are exactly what Argo is going in anyway for these uh, these lower income countries. You know, you know, they've they've contributed about zero to climate change. You know, it's the wealthy contributors who contributed uh, the vast majority of the greenhouse gases. So, you know, it's it's almost like a fairness. Uh, we're finally kind of compensating for damage that we've that we've wrought. You know, some of that was not. You know, some of it was before we knew it was an issue, but most of it was after we knew this was an issue. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, it was going to go to some of those actions, which are what we call climate mitigation. But a lot of it is actually intended for climate adaptation. Uh, you know, they, uh, they're they already a small player in, in climate change, but they're, uh, you know, they're outsourced loser so far in the impacts of climate change. Such as, um, like, what do you, you just mean, like more susceptible to strong storms or or what do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, so larger extreme uh, weather events, uh, sea level rise. Obviously, some okay. of these countries are coastal Bangladeshes, you know, very low lying, um, and also their their um, energy infrastructures. Their grids are usually very simplistic, and you know, if you have uh, electricity go out and your hospital doesn't have enough fuel for generators, people die. You know, so there's some there's some actual very practical on the ground ways to invest in climate resilience. Okay. Um, you mentioned, you know, the term resilience. You know, we have the uh, Environmental Resilience Institute. It was one of the grand challenges um, embarked that the university embarked on for the bicentennial. I know that your funding is uh, running out this year, I believe, and you may be you're transitioning. I know that there's a new committee on uh, climate change and planning for climate change. So, Gabe, can you sort of um, I guess, can you just update us on, you know, this overall strategy of the university from the Environmental Resilience Institute? Um, I'm, you can tell us whether it's going to continue or not, and then to this new committee and how, how that's changed the strategy. Uh, sure, happy to. What, what I was really thrilled about, and Jessica can, can speak to this as well, as she's also on this Climate Action Committee, uh, is that uh, the university is recognizing the, the need for, to be um, to to act forcefully on climate, uh, and a lot of that need is really to uh, you know is voiced by the students as well, uh, who increasingly are worried about climate change. But it also comes at the same time where our our uh, funding for the the base funding for the Environmental Resilience Institute is uh, is kind of wrapping up. It'll actually wrap up the end of next year, next fiscal year at least. So we have a, a little bit of time, and what we've been doing, um, uh, Sarah. Uh, Mincy and I have been doing, who's a, a, a director with me as well, have has been to to bring in a, uh, and request a lot of external funding as well to provide support. So we've uh, we've actually had some some really substantial gifts 
from, for example, the McKinney Family Foundation that um, funds our McKinney Climate Fellows. And we're also narrowing our, our mission, right? Like all these grand challenges, we had uh, money for new hires, which we successfully did. We had money to seed new research ideas. And so that money is largely gone, but what's still continuing on is our our work that, you know, Alex referred to in that convening. You know, we work with cities and towns and and governments and nonprofits to help them build climate resilience in their own uh, communities or their own businesses. So that will continue on uh, and and, you know, hopefully the Climate Action Planning Committee will you know, will recognize the role of having a centralized unit like like us uh, to really bring uh, bring climate action uh, to the people, as it were. You know, so really uh, um, arm them with uh, with tools that they can use to become more resilient. And and a lot of these tools are featured in our in our new book, uh, Climate Change and Resilience in Indiana and Beyond. So the Environmental Resilience Institute published this book uh, this year with uh, with uh, Indiana University Press. All right, and that book is. Uh, going to include a lot of the things that you've learned in the last what three years that's exactly right it's a great summary of the last five years actually of our work with as as a grand challenge funded initiative and now as we're transitioning to one that's um that's sort of independent um uh, we are actually in negotiations with a a series a book a limited book series uh, to continue on with this uh this uh, progress that we've had okay Alex, I want to go to you now with a question that um, we got submitted to us. The the question is, several cities in Indiana are trying to pass climate-friendly ordinances but often get blocked by state lawmakers. An example is an Indiana law that passed last year that prevents cities from banning natural gas in new homes and buildings. The question is, how are cities like Bloomington handling this? Alex? Hi, I'm here. Um, so yes, I mean it is. Uh, it's actually interesting. We were we were in uh, we were in Palo Alto. So so Bloomington is a sibling city with Palo Alto, California. We were there. They had a climate summit. One of the things that came out of it was uh, a, just how uh, cl- clearly aligned the city there was with the state. They were working hand in hand, um, which was really powerful. And uh, it was a little jarring for those of us from Bloomington that were there. Um, because, as you say, sometimes we can be at odds with uh, the legislature in the in the state of Indiana. So we have uh, struggled not only in climate, uh, but other other uh, projects that we have uh, sometimes uh, not being able to have the the collaboration that we'd like at the state. Um, there are ways that we can figure out how to how to work around it. And, and there, there are ways in which we can uh, really drive local resources to achieve the ends that we that we want to achieve locally, uh, but it's not a it's not a perfect scenario, and it is so much more powerful when you have better alignment between cities and uh, and the state, because then you can get a lot of stuff done. What are some of the projects in particular that Bloomington um, has been able to champion that maybe you know you didn't have the support from the state? I'm, I'm thinking like the solar initiative. I know Bloomington was really into. Yeah, I mean that's a great example. So we, you know, the 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 uh, Monroe County um, has some of the highest penetration of renewable and solar, in particular, uh, energy in the state. Um, that was very much a, a grassroots, uh, on the ground, local push. Um, if we'd waited around for external help on that, I'm not sure we would have made the the advances that we did over the past uh, handful of years. The the uh, economic development local income tax that uh, the mayor uh, championed and that the city council approved uh, for 2023 and beyond is a huge um, boon for us and and it's and it's something that was really done locally as well because we recognize that for us to make the kind of of strides that we wanted to make in this case there's about uh, 1.6 million dollars worth of climate action plan implementation funding specifically every year as well as close to $4 million of, of transit funding. So, I mean, it's really substantial stuff. And, and those are, that, that's the kind of activity that we take or, or undertake locally to be able to uh, keep moving forward, um, sometimes unilaterally. One of the uh, questions that's come in is really is related to, you know, the conversation we were just having about the, the Climate Action Planning Committee at IU. So, Jessica, I'm going to turn to you on this. And it, 
this question says, where are we with that, and when can we expect a final climate action plan from the university? Great question. So the president created the committee in April of this year, and we have been meeting um, pretty much every other week since that uh, committee was created. Right now, as a committee, we are in the process. We just wrapped up this semester a campus-by-campus tour, basically a listening session to hear from our students, faculty, and staff about what they would like to see in the Climate Action Plan, and then also challenges to some of the things that they would like to see. Uh, As the committee, we've actually consulted contracted with Smith Group, who is a consultant team that's helping us work through some of the energy and financial analysis. Uh, So uh, come this spring is really when we'll start putting pen to paper in earnest and taking the feedback of uh, those listening sessions as well as some of the consultants' uh, results and start identifying those very specific strategies. And the final report of recommendations is due to the president uh, in next spring, uh, March, April, uh, and then ultimately for her to review uh, and then decide uh, how we move forward from there. Uh, But I will note that, you know, the Climate Action Plan, this is not just a a one-and-done process. It's going to have to be a living document, a living process. After approval comes implementation. Uh, We know that this market is very dynamic right now, so we are going to have to build a plan that is uh, can evolve as the market evolves. Uh, So this is is, uh, not just going to be a one-and-done sort of plan. It's going to have to be something that lives for the long term for IU. We're talking about the environment today, environmental issues, climate change on Noon Edition. If you have questions for our three guests, you can call us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We have representatives from the city of Bloomington, Alex Crowley uh, from Indiana University, Gabe Filippelli and Jessica Davis, and they're, all three of them are answering questions and giving us their insights into climate. So, I, I, uh, I, Gabe, I couldn't help um, but note when you, we talked about the Climate Summit and you did mention you know, some, a remarkable outcome from this year's Climate Summit, but you said you know, every year we get together and a lot, of, a lot of people get together and talk about these issues. You know, there's, there seems to be a lot more um, – um, well, a lot more maybe fear and anxiety about where we're headed with climate now. So I guess my this may be the big question of the day, but are we making enough progress to, um, you know, prevent some sort of major climate disaster 10, 20, 30 years from now? Are we making progress or is it just too much talk still? Gabe? We are making progress. It's It's slower than it should be. Um, but we're we're making progress. For example, renewable energy um, on the globe has in- increased substantially, replacing a lot of fossil fuel sources. So progress is being made. But you know, I I share some of the concern because I look at the amount of of these greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, and um, and we talk and talk, and they keep going up and up, and we continue talking, and we and they keep they keep going up, and. And the problem is, once they're there, they take a very long time to pull out again. So, what I I try to I try to um, kind of uh, tamper people's temper people's uh, uh, expectations because the, these weather these the wacky weather that we have now these wacky climate fueled storms and and droughts they're here to stay. And and how much worse they get will depend on how much we continue emitting these fossil fuels. So uh, it's really I mean, I, I, I have kids myself and I just think, wow, uh, you know, this is you know, we're we're living in on a planet where we continue doing this. And it just seems normal where we fight against, you know, putting a solar array in a neighborhood or putting wind turbines up somewhere or even building nuclear power plants, which probably still has to be a part of the mix. Um, the climate, the, the negative impacts of climate are far worse than the negative impacts of any of those other sources. Mm-hmm. Jessica, I wanted to, to ask you a, a similar question. And, and with that question, I mean, how is IU, say, you know, your campus, IUPUI or IU in general, how are you measuring success? How are, how are we seeing whether we're making progress or not? 
Yeah, so uh, the university has a climate uh, dashboard that's actually related to the Climate Action Planning Committee's efforts. So I would encourage folks to visit go.iu.edu slash climate. You can see the greenhouse gas emissions for each campus for different years. So uh, notably, IU Bloomington has been doing greenhouse gas emissions tracking longer than some of the other campuses. Uh, they have a, a 2010 baseline. And since 2010, there's been a 38% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the Bloomington campus. Um, so that's certainly, uh, you know, not something to gloss over. We recognize that that's great. We also have more work to do. So to Gabe's point, there is a balance. There's a lot of good work that has been done. It should be celebrated, but we also have to recogni recognize that we also have a far way ahead of us to go. Um, we also do annual STARS reporting uh, for the IU Bloomington campus, as well as IUPUI and a couple other of the regionals. So we are doing um, regular public facing reporting on our sustainability efforts and that report is uh, quite broader than folks might think. It's not just the environmental footprint of campus operations. It also includes assessing uh, sustainability that's in coursework or the number of our researchers that are spending their time and effort in researching sustainability solutions. It also looks at things like our procurement policies. Uh, so sustainability is certainly much bigger than just the operational footprint, though we realize that that also uh, has to be a big focus of the university as well. Alex, I want to ask a similar question to you. I mean, how is the city measuring the success that it's having? Uh, we measure it, you know, we, we uh, like the university, like Jessica mentioned, we do uh, greenhouse gas uh, inventories every several years so we can track data that way over time. And over the past couple of years, it's standardized in a way that it wasn't previously. So we have a, a framework now that, that will be much more of an apples to apples comparison moving forward. And like uh, like the university, like Jessica mentioned, we, we recognize that the city itself uh, and we can measure things in our own operations a lot more easily, uh, obviously. And and so, you know, but but the the city operation is really a relatively small part of the overall um, effort that we're trying to push. It, it involves heavily the uh, efforts taken by the community, which is why the convening that we had drawing together uh, community members was so important, because we recognize that there's only so much we can do on the operations side. Um, the mayor says, the 2020s for us is is the critical decade. People do ask me, uh, you know, how much of a difference will, can Bloomington make on the world? And um, which is a good question. You know, we, we are a relatively small city, but what we can do and, and what I typically answer is not only can we be on top of our game and, and fight above our weight class when it comes to the, the work that we can do, we can also help to guide other communities, both in Indiana and around the Midwest and, and around the world, about what what can be done at a local level, at a city level, um, a city our, our size, and how that can be uh, implemented in other parts of the country. So, so we, you know, we feel like all of those things are worth tracking, and and we do. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Alex. Something I hear quite a bit from people is, you know, as an individual, it doesn't really your impact isn't that great right so if you make a, a lot of changes to try to do your part to fight climate change it's not doing a whole lot what would really matter is if we crack down on industries and some of the major polluters so i'm just curious if you have any any sort of reaction to that it's sort of in the in the same frame of what you were just talking about yeah i mean i would say Yes, yes, and yes, right? We, every, indivi every individual can have an effect and should. And in fact, we have a platform that is a, a really an engagement platform for individuals um, where, um, where they can take steps at an individual level. So everybody at an individual, individual level can have an effect. And also that is not just limited to the effect that they are having themselves, but it becomes symbolic. And, and you know, we all have networks of people and people watch other people. And so I think you know, there's a ripple effect to individual activities that can that can really have a much broader impact. And that's what I was referring to at a city level. But that's true at at, um, at the individual level. So I would say, you know, we, we have to all act individually. We have to act as cities. We have to act as as private sector entities, uh, the ones that are in our communities, you know, getting them aligned with with the overall community objectives. All of that work has to be done, and you know, to the earlier question, it's it's certainly. I wish it were, were happening uh, faster, but uh, but it's happening, and it's and it's certainly going to take a lot of uh, community effort to get it done. 
Um, one more question, Alex, that we got in via email for you. What are the goals of Zero in Bloomington? Really, fundamentally, it's to um, it's to there, there are a couple of, of goals for the platform. One is to share and um, share information with individuals that they can uh, take action uh, from. So, so you know, ideas and and tracking those ideas and being able to kind of report in on those. It's also, I think, more broadly, a good place. We're looking at it as a depository. There are a lot of programs that are out there that people um, may or may not know about. We know that that uh, you know, speaking with people, there's a lot of information. It's just very hard to come by sometimes. So it can be a an aggregation point for that information, uh, whether it's um, household. Uh, that, that can take advantage of it or businesses or whatever that 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 we can start to put information in a centralized location that makes it easier for people to access. I want to ask a question that's um, kind of about whether this is a generational issue or not. There was a study done by, by the Pew Research Center um, that the information was released last month that says, probably not surprisingly, young people around the world have been at the forefront of climate change protests. And in the United States, adults under 40 are considerably more likely than their elders to express concern about the issue and attribute it to human activity. I know we mentioned, we talked about this briefly before the show, Gabe, the Environmental uh, Research Institute did a study as well. Did you come up with the same finding? Uh, we did. It's actually the Environmental Resilience Institute. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes, we did. Um, one of the projects that was funded with some of our phenomenal researchers did uh, surveys. It's called the Hoosier Life Survey, and they followed it up with another survey. And they were really extensive, statistically solid, robust surveys of what are people in Indiana thinking about the environment, climate, human roles? Because we wanted to take the temperature of the populace. You know, uh, so anything you do, you have to understand how it might be received or not. Um, and in this case, uh, one su very surprising result for me, at least, you know, you see this very red state in general, and, and we equate uh, uh, the Republicans and conservatives with maybe more denying or doubting about climate change. But in fact, the 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 significant majority of Hoosiers were concerned about climate change. They linked it to human activities and they wanted to do better. You know, of course, uh, the younger younger age groups are kind of shockingly concerned. And this is, you know, this is what I've seen on campus. You know, I, I see this generation of young people who want to be engaged in in the fight. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, in the fight to to turn this around. Uh, unfortunately, they have very they're very loud and active, which is great, uh, but they don't have they're not. Um, holding the levers of power on climate change. You know, that's held by the elders. And in this dichotomy, young people being increasingly alarmed and older people being maybe apathetic does not bode well in the long run in terms of us uh, really coming to grips uh, with climate. I, you know, some of the climate activists maybe go overboard. I mean, there's, you hear things like we only have, you know, eight years to, to, uh, to deal with climate or we're doomed. Well, that's not exactly true. Climate, uh, climate doesn't have a have a um, a clock. It doesn't have a timeline. Uh, it's just the the longer we delay action, the worse the future will be. Right. So it's you know if if you didn't start on climate action today, start on it tomorrow. That's the next best day to start. Mm -hmm. um, that was Gabe Filippelli from the Environmental Resilience Institute at IU. Jessica Davis from um, the she's the IU Director of Sustainability. Um, or Interim Director for Sustainability for IU and Director of IUPUI Sustainability. At IUPUI, you work with a lot of students. I mean, does, does this generational uh, division, does it ring true to you? Well, I can definitely tell you that the number of students that we have who are interested in sustainability, it feels like they are practically climbing in the windows now <laughs> to take classes in sustainability, to work with our office, whether it's through an internship program, a research project. 
they want to be plugged in and they want to be plugged in to Gabe's point to fixing it. They're they're less interested in theory and they're much more interested in practical application of fixing it now. And there's actually research the Princeton Review does an annual college hopes and worries survey and in that survey they survey um, students who are getting ready to prepare to enter college and they the the most recent report the 2022 report revealed that 74 percent of those students say that a college's environmental commitment would affect their decision about where they go so when we're looking at attracting and retaining students sustainability becomes a very important component of a university's identity uh, we can't just talk the talk we must also walk the walk um, and students are an important part of walking that walk, uh, at least for our office. They're a fantastic way for us to expand our bandwidth. Um, they own their own projects. They're running them in the while they are doing that. They are learning how to be sustainability professionals. And our approach is the Office of Sustainability is that I want to train these students to be my colleagues one day. Um, so uh, absolutely, uh, definitely true that we're seeing increasing interest and commitment to this sort of area from our students. What are some things that they're doing? Oh, man. Great list. I can give you an example. Uh, one of our interns uh, here at IEPUI, Henry, he's our sustainable transportation intern. So he dual reports to our office and the Office of Parking and Transportation Services. And through really his effort, he was able to get IEPUI to submit its first bike-friendly university uh, report. And we were able to get a ranking out of that. And now we're going to use that ranking to improve our biking programs and infrastructure moving forward. That's something that that may or may not have happened without Henry being persistent and taking on the extra time and effort to get that done. We've also had students apply for funding and win grants to electrify our grounds equipment. Uh, we're you know, growing food on campus. That's largely student efforts. Uh, they're just uh, bottomless fountains of inspiration. They certainly help me out on days when sometimes this work gets really heavy. Uh, to Gabe's point, you have to balance uh, you know, needing to do more with also just the day-to-day -day regularities. So they, they are certainly uh, keep us on our toes and we deeply appreciate them for their time and efforts in helping both the university, but also us move along too as an office. A question we got in for you, Jessica. It's uh, The question is several universities around the country are partially powered by solar, wind, or some other kind of clean energy. What are some of the barriers for IU to accomplish this? And are those worth looking into again? Sure. Um, so Indiana is kind of a unique state in that our electricity markets are regulated by the state. So when we look at other universities who have a bit more of a of a, a bit more uh, visible uh, solar on campus, that is that is one uh, challenge. So what that means is that when we're looking at renewables, uh, the majority of that probably has to be behind the grid, which means then funded by the university. Some of those other universities that have big solar farms, they're funded by outside entities. Uh, the outside entity puts up the capital for it and then the university locks in a rate. That's a bit harder for us given the regulated environment. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily stop any of the ideas. It just means that we have to be creative uh, and work within uh, our in energy policy bounds that are here in the state. And Gabe, a follow-up for you. Um, what are just, if you can sort of zoom out a bit, and then what are some of the biggest challenges you see facing Indiana in terms of, as we look ahead, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, we, um, we in, in terms of the climate impact space, uh, maybe I'll comment on that first and see if that's where you're getting at. Yes, please. So, uh, yeah, okay. Um, Indiana, like much of the Midwest, um, has, you know, we're very low lying. And so we're susceptible to flooding anyway. It ends up that the uh, that extreme precipitation events, so just big rainfalls, are coming more and more frequently. So we have more of them per year uh, than we used to. And in much of Indiana, it's gone up by about 15% since 2000, the number of those. And they're going to go up another 15% in the next 20 years or so. What that means is that, you know, when you get flooding, it's not only displacement of people, but it's also uh, stormwater and sewage discharges into the environment. It's what we're grappling with here in Indiana and Indianapolis, like the bigger cities are trying to deal with stormwater. So that's one big issue I keep hearing, stormwater. We need to manage it. You know, Bloomington famously, uh, I think it was just last year, had a had, had a, a, a huge precipitation event and caused quite a bit of damage and I, I think even a death in Bloomington. 
And so it's it's those are some issues. And and of course, you, you St. Louis experienced I think twelve inches of rainfall in um, in about four hours this last summer. Uh, so dealing with those, uh, as well as dealing with extreme heat. So in a lot of cities, are uh, are pretty hot places. They're much warmer than the countryside. Uh, that's because they have a lot of heat absorbing materials in them, as you can imagine. And so uh, we're we're actually helping um, cities and towns in that respect as well with a Beat the Heat program uh, by one of my colleagues, Dana Habib, uh, who is mapping out the heat signature of cities um, and and trying to develop uh, action plans for the cities uh, to deal with uh, trying to cool down areas, particularly vulnerable areas. And you think, cool down? How are you going to do that? Well, the cooling down is usually by the old-fashioned way of you know increasing the amount of green space, increasing the the urban forest cover in those areas, and voila, you will cool them down very quickly. So, these are these are among the biggest challenges for Indiana in the Midwest. But we have ways to overcome those challenges. We just can't think that that freak storm is never going to happen again, right? The freak storm is now the normal storm, and we can expect more of them in the future. Yeah, and in Indiana, obviously farming, when you talk about flooding, is a big thing and enough food for people to eat. Um, and I, I might say this wrong, so please correct me, um, that Indiana could be a state where a lot of folks who are displaced because of climate change, they might be relocating here. Is, mm-hmm. is, does that run counter to what you were just saying, though, if you're talking about flooding and homes being affected? It doesn't actually. Yeah, the term climate migration, it, it's because it's worse in other places, if you know what I okay, mean. Yeah. Um, the, the coasts are getting worse. Um, you know, Miami is already at, basically at sea level. Most of Miami is. And that's, these are big populations on the coast. So there is some expectation that there will be some in, uh, internal to the, to the U.S. climate migration. And so that also means that we should ourselves be prepared uh, to accept those people means that we have to build infrastructure that is adequate to the climate challenges that we're we're facing. I want to give Alex a, an opportunity to weigh in on this because, you know, Gabe mentioned the, the stormwater event from last year, or I think it was last year, or earlier this year, know, whenever. Yeah. There, there, there have been several over time, but I know that there have been lots of efforts to work on the stormwater issues in Bloomington, and I believe there are things on the books for next year as well, but can you give us an update on that? Yeah, well, Gabe, uh, you know, mentioned uh, certain things that are actually documented in the Climate Action Plan. Our, our green space and eco health, ecosystem health chapter lists four goals. Um, one is, uh, you know, green space, as he mentioned, um, native habitats, um, a tree canopy, and stormwater, right? So those are the four macro goals of that chapter, all of which uh, we're working on. And and you're right, there was that uh, extreme flooding event over on the, that largely affected uh, Kirkwood and the surrounding area. Um, and uh, our city of Bloomington Utilities has been working on augmenting stormwater um, uh, infrastructure to be able to um, help mitigate those and avoid them in the future. It's a it's a huge undertaking. And you mentioned uh, climate migration. That's absolutely something that we're aware of. Um, you know, I mentioned having been out in California and, and you know, they're dealing with wildfires and water problems uh, and, and challenges, uh, neither of which we to date have had to deal with. Right. So we have our own issues, uh, but those are two really significant issues that that we you know, mercifully haven't had to deal with yet. Having said that, uh, we have to be very, very careful about our water source, protecting our water source. It's a great asset for Bloomington to have uh, Lake Monroe, um, but that resource is not, we, we cannot take it for granted. And I know the, the uh, City of Bloomington Utilities is heavily involved in that as well. Yeah, can you add a little bit to that? I know there have been a couple of efforts in the last decade or so for, you know, Indian, Indianapolis has talked about coming down, trying to get water from Lake Monroe. There also are, you know, environmental issues that come about that involve Lake Monroe. I mean, what are the issues that you're keeping an eye on when it comes to our drinking water? 
Well, I happen to serve on the Lake Monroe Water Fund Board, so I have some visibility into it. They're, they're great organizations, the Friends of Lake Monroe is another one that, that is focused on it, the City of Bloomington Utilities. Uh, the city itself is putting funding against all of those. Um, you know, the, the basic issue is that the city is dependent on that water source uh, exclusively for drinking water. And not only the city, but the surrounding area. And the watershed is something that feeds the lake. And so really protecting the lake means keeping an eye on the watershed and making sure that what's happening in the watershed um, is 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 helping to maintain the integrity of the lake. So there are uh, a, a bunch of efforts underway to do that. Uh, but the bottom line is it is such a critical resource. And I'm always um, amazed by uh, how much enthusiasm there is for it. Uh, I think a lot of people are aware of it. And so it's really a matter of leveraging that enthusiasm from not just governmental entities, but from the whole community and and putting a focus on that resource as as one of our most critical assets. Oh, so I want to give our, our numbers again. Let, let people uh, give us a call if you have questions for Alex Crowley from the city of Bloomington or Gabe Filippelli and Jessica Davis, who are uh, both involved with Indiana University. We're talking about sustainability and environmental climate change issues. So if you want to call us, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, toll free, 877-285-9348. And you can also send us your questions to um, news at indianapublicmedia.org or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Send us your questions there. Alex, this probably is, starts with you, but I think uh, both Gabe and Jessica might be able to, to answer this. I, I want to talk about the sort of issues that sometimes seem contradictory or, or maybe they're complementary. I don't, I don't know which it would be, but... You know, we talk a lot about like housing affordability, you know, where are people going to live, how are we going to, you know, develop the community. You know, you, Alex, are involved with, you know, sustainable and economic development. How, how can you make, how can you ensure that these, these issues go hand in hand, that we can build enough places, have enough places for people to live in our community and do them in the most sustainable way possible? Big That's a question. great question. It's a big question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but actually, I think what's interesting. So, when you think about how the city has a de has designed the department that I lead, uh, it, it combines sustainability, economic development, arts and culture, uh, transportation, demand management, all of those under one umbrella. And the reason why I think it's that's it's a very progressive way of doing it. It's not very common, but what makes it interesting is that when we are looking at development projects, so we are looking, for example, at the Hopewell project, which is the former IU Health Hospital site on the east, uh, west side of town. Um, as we look at that and as we plan ahead for what kind of development um, strategies we want to put in place there, we are naturally organized to actually ask the very question that you asked, which is how do you balance the need for housing, uh, it, it, which that Hopewell neighborhood will we'll, we'll heavily have with uh, our goals for sustainability, our goals for arts and culture and quality of life generally. And the answer is that that I see the marketplace actu actually evolving pretty aggressively to be able to adjust its, uh, in, in the case of de development, development strategies to deliver against all of those. So affordable housing does not have to come at the expense of sustainability or vice versa. Um, and good design does not have to be sacrificed to achieve either of those other two. What you can do is demand all of them. And not everybody will play in that game. In fact, I always say that if we are not um, dismissing half of the development proposals, then we're not doing our job. That there is a group of development partners out there that we can work with that get and buy into our goals for the community, those are the ones that we have to attract, and those are the ones that are gonna deliver what we expect for the community. I guess I would follow up with Gabe and Jessica about that same conflict, is that uh, when you talk about environmental resilience within the, the state of Indiana, I mean, is that conflict something that might keep progress from occurring? I'm actually going to defer to Jessica on that one. She knows quite a bit about this topic. 
So I would say to Alex's point about when it comes to infrastructure, so universities are essentially little cities and many of our campuses provide housing to our students. And we're also concerned about the rising cost of tuition and keeping you know higher ed accessible to as many folks as possible. And Alex is right that, that keep affordability and sustainable design are not at odds with each other. Um, at Indiana University, for example, we're committed to all of our new construction being LEED certified as well as any major renovations. And while those buildings may be a bit more expensive on the upfront to, to design and to construct, over the operating lifespan of that building, we have data that they are more affordable. Um, so if we're able to be smarter on the upfront, we can lock in long-term responsible savings, uh, both financial uh, savings as well as environmental and greenhouse gas savings to the benefit of all of the students that we serve. Um, so it's that kind of looking at uh, sort of a life cycle analysis of any sort of uh, infrastructure decision that you make, you can make smarter decisions now that will pay dividends into the future of that space. Uh, so Alex is completely right. And when we're, we're working with the state to get approval for some of these, uh, that, that can be the argument for why we can um, maybe spend a little bit more on the upfront is because we know we're going to be able to lock in longer term savings that benefits our campus as well as the taxpayer base that supports us. So, so Jessica, I know when we're talking about globally, the U.S. does rank pretty low in terms of its environmental efforts. Um, I'm reluctant to bring politics into this, but I'm just curious how big of a reason that is for why it, it has sort of become like a political football, it seems. So I'm curious if that, what sort of impact yeah. that is having on the efforts in the U.S. to combat climate change. Sure. Unfortunately, sustainability has largely been politicized. Um, it really shouldn't be. It's a it's a win for everybody when it is done correctly. I do think um, it's a problem that is so big that we need all voices at the table. And it I consider it to be my job to get people to the table, even the folks who we may think disagree. But to Gabe's point, sometimes the folks that we think disagree don't. Um, there's a sustainability access point for everybody. Sometimes it just looks different than how it's maybe sold publicly. I do think a, a struggle is, especially at the federal level, is when you have sometimes rapid turnovers in federal administration. It changes policy, it changes funding. So uh, while the Inflation Reduction Act is gonna infuse a lot of funding into the sustainability space, which we're really looking forward to be able to access, how does that change if and when an administration changes? Same thing can happen at a state level and a local level with politics, right? You get a, an influx of leadership in and out with changing priorities. That's where these institutions that stand the test of time a bit longer than election cycles like IU have the ability to kind of put their mark in the ground to say, you know, IU's been here for 200 years. That's the kind of, you know, timeline that we're going to attempt to make decisions on because we realize we're going to last longer than, than any sort of uh, where the political wind may blow. Uh, but it does make it a struggle from a financial and a planning standpoint sometimes. But you also have to see through that to the opportunity. Yeah. That just made me think of like the Paris Climate Accord. Um, that was something that seemed to have so much potential. And what, what about that now, Jessica? Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, although it seems like uh, we have course corrected back with this last uh, COP meeting that the U.S. is back in and uh, funding these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a perfect example of uh, sometimes the wishy-washiness <laughs> that can happen uh, in our sort of national, national cultural identity around these sorts of issues and also our reputation on the global scale. Uh, it does make it a challenge. Mm -hmm. Jessica, I've got one more for you that just came in from uh, Charlie, who uh, is not going to go on the air, but he said, is IU or IUPUI allocating funds or has a budget prepared to add solar panels to their buildings in the future? So that's a really nuanced question. Um, whenever we look at energy projects, there's always a financial analysis that is done. So I'll say that the university is always keeping any type of energy source in its sight line for analysis. Uh, we're not sleeping on any particular one of them. Uh, we have to be uh, cognizant of price considerations and all of those decisions for sure. Uh, so it, it is on the table. It is something that the university is always exploring uh, on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I think uh, as a result of this climate action planning, uh, hopefully we'll see some things come out of that that are positive in that space. We've had a lot of, we've covered a lot of ground today. We have three minutes to go. I want to give each of you a, 
a, a time to make a final comment. Uh, anything that we haven't gotten to, and uh, let's let's start with uh, Alex. Alex, anything about what the city's up to and what the city's doing that you can tell us about in the last thirty seconds or so? Well, I, let me just say that the you know the, I think the city the city's well positioned uh, in terms of funding, in terms of focus. Mayor Hamilton's made this a major uh, priority for the administration and for the city. Uh, I, I would echo Jessica's mention of the Inflation Reduction Act. Federal funding is huge for us as well. So the combination of those two right now is really important to the city's uh, future success and the investments we can make now. So we are heavily involved in uh, turning over every rock we can to to find the funding that we, we need and, and can get to be able to achieve uh, some of the goals of the Climate Action Plan and some of the other goals the city has. All right, Gabe, final comment? Sure. I just want to add it's been so exciting the last couple of years uh, helping to lead the Environmental Resilience Institute, seeing the work that we do in communities appreciated by the communities and actually uh, taken up by them, as well as appreciated by our students who now, you know, these student, young people who are concerned about climate, now they have a vehicle to be productive with their concerns, meaning go out in cities and towns with us uh, and do the hard work and and help, help communities, Republican or Democrat, we've done it both, um, achieve climate success uh, in, in several years' time. So that's been super exciting. All right, and Jessica, you can, uh, you can take us out with a minute. Sure. I would encourage folks to stay up to date and engage with IU's climate action planning process, if that's uh, something that you're interested in. Um, we're, I'm really excited uh, for the potential of this plan and where it's going to take IU. I, I think it will really be a great springboard for things to come. And then I would also put uh, another call out there. We get a lot of questions from folks about wanting to pivot to sustainability who may be in other careers or join, uh, you know, somehow dedicate themselves to sustainability. And what I would say is that there's a place at the, at the climate change and sustainability table for everyone and every job is a sustainability and climate job uh, and i would encourage you to explore what that looks like in your own sort of effort and energy that you can make uh to have change wherever you happen to spend your time and effort uh, we need everybody at the table and that includes folks who don't have sustainability in their job title all right thank you very much jessica davis and also gabriel Filippelli and alex crowley for being with us today for Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, and for Kathy Knapp and Nathan Moore, our producers and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.